Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I've been blessed by our Sunday school discussion. I'm very thankful that uh, Jesus didn't quit meeting people uh, when he met the lady there, the Samaritan lady. I'm thankful that Jesus met me 35 years ago. I don't know. I'm not the best at math. Didn't figure it out. But uh, Jesus is still meeting people, and he still wants to meet each one of us. I was also um, inspired by the thought in the men's class that uh, it's impossible to, to separate our walk and our worship, that when we, when we walk in the Spirit, we're worshiping in the Spirit, um, and vice versa, that it's impossible to separate the two. As we begin a new year and um, everything that's involved with that, it's common to, to think back over the past and uh, remember, remember both the good memories and the not so good, um, the times of success, the times of failure, Times of joy, times of sorrow. Um, most people's years have some of each of those things. But it's also a time to a time of looking ahead, a time of new beginnings, a time of anticipation. Looking forward to our um, service this evening. But you know, Paul, Paul spoke of of forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward, pressing toward the mark. And um, I'm all for pressing forward, and yet it's also helpful to look backwards uh, so that we can learn from the past. I believe our, our conference, um, conference motto is pressing toward the mark, pressing toward the mark. And that's the title of the message this morning, pressing toward the mark. And so over the last week or so of, of pondering the message this morning, my mind went, went to the year ahead, and it went to the year behind. And you know, our, our church has, over the last couple of years, has, has walked, through, um, walked through some times of pain, some times of loss and hurt. But what do we think about when we think about the future? You know, last Sunday, Brother Tim spoke on, on living in light of the Lord's return or living in light of Christ's return. And, you know, we don't know when that is, but the simple truth is, is that Christ will return. And that simple truth should affect uh, every aspect of our life. We don't know when that will happen, but we do know that it will happen. And it's our responsibility to have a relationship with God that is... That is uh, clean and unspotted from the world. And I realize that um, in reality, there's no, no special power uh, that surrounds New Year's Day or the beginning of a new year, uh, the beginning of a calendar year. There's nothing, um, no, nothing mystical about, about flipping that calendar page. Uh, it is a good time of reflection and anticipation. There's something special about a fresh start, a clean slate, a brand new page. Uh, there's something, something special about that. 
And so as we look at the future, and as we, uh, or more specifically, as we look at this coming year, what are you anticipating? What are you hoping to accomplish? What are you moving forward to? And what are you moving away from? What is changing? What do you want to change? I'll just mention right now that um, if y'all see me being kind of delicate with my thumb here, you don't realize how much you use a thumb until you have a hand that's uh, swolled up and, and, and delicate. Um, I banged it three days ago, and I should have taken some ibuprofen this morning. But when I, think of, when I think about change and what do I want to change, do I want anything to change? Is that something you want? Are you wanting change? Now, change isn't something that we always look forward to. But I think we should always uh, want some change. It's not always pleasant. Um, perhaps it's not always enjoyable, but it is something that we do need uh, without change, there is no growth. Uh, there's nothing, nothing different without change. And so when I think of change, I'm not talking about temporary change. Uh, I'm talking about deep, inner, lasting change, a change of heart, a change that um, not only affects our actions, but it affects your attitudes. Uh, it affects your affections. It affects your character. Uh, it's a change that results in a transformation. Okay, a transformation. That's that's more uh, that's that's more what I'm thinking of. Not just a change, but an actual transformation, something completely new. That type of change doesn't normally happen overnight. It doesn't happen with a snap of your fingers. It doesn't happen with a New Year's resolution. Um, that's the type of change that, that Christians are called to, and yet we find ourselves often struggling with. That type of, that decision um, starts in your heart and it moves outward. You know, for, for a decision, uh, for us to make a decision that makes a lasting transformation, we need to decide that we're willing uh, to put our natural desires, our natural uh, wants last and then be firmly focused on allowing God to change our habits. And so as I thought about transformation, there's a few, a few points or a few truths I thought of about spiritual transformation. And number one is that transformation begins with God. It begins with God and it's a process that's marked by grace, okay? Trans transformation um, normally for us to be transformed, it's not something um, for lasting spiritual transformation. It's something that the Holy Spirit works in our heart and places uh, in our heart. And then it's not something that we just automatically obtain um, and we're perfect from then on out. No, our, our sanctification is a process, and we need, to, we need to allow God then to help us to change our habits. So it's marked by grace. It's not marked by perfection. And it's a lifelong journey. I think of Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, God is the one who begins the work and he's the one that completes it. Okay, but we must do our part as well. Transformation requires our cooperation and self-discipline. Intentional spiritual practices, so prayer, uh, reading your Bible, scripture meditation, fellowship, those type of things, uh, they put us in a place where we can uh, see God, where we can understand God better. We can see God's work and we can respond to him. But God doesn't force spiritual transformation on us. I believe someone said this morning in our Sunday school class that, that God doesn't take us any farther than we're willing to go. Like he doesn't force transformation on us. We need to be willing and disciplined. I'd like to read a couple of verses here out of John chapter 15. John chapter 15, this is a, a very familiar passage. Jesus here teaching the disciples here right before his death. John chapter 15, 1 through 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So what does our cooperation in our transformation, uh, what does that look like? Well, it looks like abiding in the vine. I think the key word here is abide. Uh, the word, it means to dwell, to stay, to settle in, to sink deeper. Not just be on the surface, but to actually um, be plugged in and to stay there. Abiding in Christ is, is the first step to having our outer actions, um, our, our outer, shall we say, resolutions, um, that's the first step in, in our outer actions actually reflecting a, an inner change in our heart. We need to abide in Christ. We need to, to draw our strength from the vine. And as we do that, he leads us, he enables us, uh, he guides us, and we bear fruit. Not just uh, fruit, but there by verse 5, it's much fruit. You know, it's... It's easy for us, and perhaps our tendency is, is to try to sprout fruit on our own. And you know, no matter how hard you try, it's hard to just sprout fruit. But it's something that comes from abiding in Christ. Too so often when we try to sprout fruit on our own, uh, we forget to receive nourishment from God. And we end up with less fruit than more fruit. If we are to bear fruit, we must abide in the vine. You know, if I had a peach tree, if I had a peach tree that every year just was covered in peaches, and it, it just it brought forth amazing fruit, and I loved peaches, but you know that, that thing about going out and, and 
picking a peach every time I wanted one. It kind of kind of got old. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to do something different this year. I'm Here in the spring, I'm going to just cut a branch off and bring it in the house and sit it in the corner and wait a couple of months and it's going to bloom and it's going to bring forth peaches. And then when I want a peach, it'll be just right here in the corner. I won't need to go out and pick it. Well, if I said that, well, y'all look at me like, like you just don't understand. You don't understand how it works. And rightfully so. A branch that's separated from the vine won't bring forth fruit. It'll wither up and die. And that's the way a Christian is as well. That's what Jesus here is getting at. We might know how we should behave and what we should do. But if we're cut off from the vine, if we're cut off from the Lord, if we're distanced from him, there won't be any fruit. We need to be in his presence daily, hourly. We need to continue in his word. If there's lack of fruit in our life, we shouldn't say, well, you know, I just don't understand why I'm not bearing fruit. I just, you know, I can't understand that. No, it, it's, it's a fact that our, our, our spiritual life uh, is only as close to the Lord as we choose it to be. We need to abide in Him. And so as, as I thought about the year ahead, um, I jotted down some, some goals for myself, uh, for our congregation, and these aren't um, these aren't new goals. These aren't goals that um, are any different this year. They should have been our same goals last year, and they should be our goals next year's too. Um, if we, but if we abide in Christ, and, and if we focus on being more Christ-like in these areas, uh, it will transform us. It will lead to spiritual blessing. And, and these, these goals, um, I'm not going to call them resolutions, um, but I, I think they're goals. They're not something that we can, we'll, we'll perfectly attain to uh, this side of eternity, but it's something that we can constantly strive for. And they're not really in any, any order of importance. Uh, each one of us are at various stages of our journey, various stages of our Christian maturity. If some of these you feel like you've already attained, well, bless your heart. Um, keep, keep going. Uh, you probably have a little bit more room to go. Um, but that being said, these aren't necessarily going to apply to everyone evenly. Um, some, some people struggle with some areas more than others. Um, and I want to be up front and say that um, I'm with Paul here. I'm the, chief of the chiefest of sinners. Um, these, um, these are not, are not things that do not apply to me. So um, a goal for this year is to be joyful. To be joyful. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, joy, joy is that deep feeling of gladness uh, that results from the work of God in your life. It's not necessarily dependent on situations. 
Uh, It's not dependent on current events or the actions of others. And yet it's something that um, should be in, in every Christian's life. To be joyful. We should be joyful. Jesus said in, in John 15, just a couple of verses later, John 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And that, that is right here in the midst of his teaching on abiding in the vine and the love of the Father um, and how if you abide in the vine and the Father loves you and you love the Father and the peace and the joy that you can have with that. When we have true joy in Christ, we won't find ourselves dwelling on the negative aspects of others. When we choose um, to value God's presence and his promises and his work in our lives, it opens our eyes to his grace around us. It brings us joy. When we see, when we see God's presence and work in the lives of our brothers and sisters, we're much more likely to extend grace to our fellow man. Let's be joyful. Let's be humble. Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Humility literally means lowliness of mind. And it's a heart attitude. It's an attitude of your heart. It's not just your outward demeanor. You can't necessarily, well, yes, you can look humble. But just because you look humble doesn't necessarily mean that you are humble. Okay, Humility is an attitude of the heart. You can put on an outward show of humility but still have a heart full of pride and arrogance. I think it's impossible for us to have hearts that are lifted up in pride and be able to see others as Christ sees them. When our hearts are full of pride, we see people as we want to see them, as we see them. We need to view people as Christ sees them. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Philippians 2, verse 3. Or Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 26 and 27. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. Let's be a humble church. Let's be a humble church made up of humble people. Let's be willing to be uncomfortable while building the kingdom of God. 
be willing to be uncomfortable while building the kingdom of God. Who likes to be uncomfortable? Well, not me. But you know, there's many promises to a Christian. Uh, The Bible is full of promises. But I don't think you'll find where you're promised a comfortable life. What part of take up your cross and follow me sounds comfortable? What part of dying to self is comfortable? Jesus calls us to live radically different lives than the people around us. And that's not always comfortable. In fact, it's rarely comfortable. And you know, working in the kingdom of God... It looks different for different people. Some people are involved in one ministry. Some people are involved in another. But we need to be willing to be uncomfortable. We should not let our comfort level uh, decide uh, how we're going to build the kingdom. That's really not one of the things that we should um, enter into. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of differing um, things to consider but not necessarily your comfort level. You know, I think it's easy to think that that Peter and Paul and Stephen and all those great heroes in the Old Testament, I think it's easy to think that, that you know, they were comfortable. What, you know, what they did just comes naturally. You know, Peter there at Pentecost, he stood up and just preached. It wasn't even hard for him. Um, Stephen, when he was about to be stoned, he just said it how it was, looked up and saw God, and it was just easy. Uh, Philip, when he was witnessing to the eunuch, um, it, doesn't give, it doesn't give any sense that he had some misgivings. Um, but I'm guessing he did a little bit. I'm guessing he did. And yet they wanted to be used of God. And that's us. That's me. We need to be willing to be used of God, whatever that looks like. And it looks different for different people. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't sound very comfortable, does it? Well, I'm not saying that we need to go out of our way to be uncomfortable or to look for uncomfortable situations. I'm not saying that. But we do need to be willing to do what God has asked us to do and to to make use of the opportunities that we have. Whether that's helping the homeless, whether that's reaching out to a homeless person that you come in contact with, whether that's doing something else with someone who our culture, society looks down on, uh, whether that means moving to a foreign country, moving away from our school, moving away from our church, it's not always comfortable. In fact, it rarely is. Maybe it's talking about salvation uh, to a group of your friends who are unbelievers. 
Maybe it's being hospitable. Open your home to to host a visiting course that's coming through. Maybe it's simply inviting somebody over for dinner uh, that's kind of outside of your normal circle of friends or your age group, different stage of life. Sometimes it's doing something or helping someone even when friends from your church or your family don't really see the need. Uh, That's not always comfortable. But we need to be willing. We should not cease to serve Christ because of our discomfort. If we want the sake of the kingdom to advance, how important is it for us? How important is it for you? How important is it for me? This coming year, let's focus on the kingdom of God instead of the kingdoms of this world. Now, I don't know if you've figured it out or not, but uh, this coming year or this year is an election year. And you know what, what all an election year holds. But I'd like to caution you not to get caught up in the politics of this world. Don't involve yourself in the day-to-day. I'm not saying stick your head in the sand, but don't become involved in the day-to-day, he said, she said, dirty, deceitful political landscape. It's not part of the kingdom of God. Um, It's the kingdom of the world, and a citizen of heaven shouldn't become involved in it. Don't allow yourself to get involved in it emotionally. I know uh, from my own personal experience, um, just, you know, I want to keep up with the news. I want to know what's happening. But really quickly, I can become emotionally involved in something that really I have no business being part of. When Christians get caught up in politics... They're confronted with choosing the lesser of two evils. And I don't think that's something that we, about a child of God, should have to make. I recently heard um, Brother Philip Wanger uh, from the Bank Church up in Harrisonburg, I heard him say um, that when Christians get involved in politics, they always compromise and the church always loses. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think you can go back over history and you can see that that's true. He went on to give the illustration of the, um, he gave the example of no-fault divorces. He said, you know, however many years ago, there wasn't such a thing as a no-fault divorce. You actually had to go to the the court and point out how how evil your spouse was. Um, But that California was the first was the first state to adopt uh, no no fault divorces, and the law um, in that state at that time was was pushed for and signed by then Governor Ronald Reagan. Well, Ronald Reagan was divorced himself, and he became president, and he was was very popular with with 
evangelical Christians. But historians look back and they say that the mainstream church went silent on divorce. When? During those years. During those years. Because they had, they could not, they had to compromise. And that's something that we need to be careful of. I just recently read an article yesterday or the day before of, um, it was pointing out the contradiction of, of people that, that uh, mourn the removal of the Ten Commandments from you know, government buildings and schools and yet openly push and advocate for um, someone who's running for president who just who blatantly blatantly breaks and um, blatantly breaks the Ten Commandments. And so there's, there's compromise and contradiction, and it happens on both sides of the so-called aisle, um, whether it's abortion or other, you know, moral issues. There's always, um, you have to ignore issues that are contrary to Jesus' teaching um, in order to, to support one side or the other. And so we dare not allow ourselves to be compromised like that. Be careful. Let's focus on spiritual growth instead of financial growth. Spiritual growth instead of financial growth. Colossians 3 verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So what is more important to you? What do you spend the most time pondering, the most time strategizing for? Spiritual growth, financial growth. Spiritual health, financial health. I'm not saying that we should ignore our bank account, that we should ignore our jobs, ignore finances. But what is our main goal? What is most important to us? The New Testament gives many, many warnings on the danger of, of wealth. Uh, wealth itself isn't, um, isn't a sin, and yet what we do with those riches certainly can be. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. God may have entrusted you with wealth, but it's not for your gain. It's not for your children's gain. It's for the kingdom of God. And I, I thank God for um, people who have financial means and are willing to give. Um, that's what, that's what, without, those, without those people, um, there's a lot of, of good missions and good work for the kingdom that won't get done. Um, I'm amazed when I hear some of the numbers and some of the amounts that people are willing to give. It's a blessing. It's humbling. 
And yet, we need to be careful that our focus is on spiritual growth and let God take care of the financial growth. In this coming year, let's practice forbearance and forgiveness. Forbearance and forgiveness. Again, in Colossians, Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So we have two words, forbearance and forgiveness. You know, forbearing means uh, what kind of has the, the idea of putting up with or enduring. And we shouldn't just endure other people. That, that's not, that's not, what I'm, not what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that we should just, just put up with. But there is, there is an aspect of that. We have differing opinions. We think differently. We come from different backgrounds. I, I may raise my children in a way that's different than the way you raise your children. It's, it's, we're differing. We have differing um, opinions about things. And so there, there needs to be some forbearance. There needs to be a willingness to, to bear with each other. Maybe we would rather see something done another way. And if we feel strongly about it, then we can go in Christ-like love and have a conversation about it. But sometimes we just forbear. And that's something that um, we need to practice, forbearance. We also need to practice forgiveness. I saw a quote by Harold Martin that said, forbearance is holding everything back while forgiveness is holding nothing against. And they're both necessary, both necessary. We need to give release. When we forgive, we give release to another for the wrongs that they did to us. And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We need to be willing to forgive others, to extend the same grace and forgiveness to others as we want them to extend to us. So let's practice forbearance and forgiveness. Let's also be compassionate. Compassionate. To have mercy, to feel sympathy, to have pity. Are we compassionate people? What moves you to tears? Are we like Jesus when he saw the multitudes and he looked out over the crowds of people and he had compassion? The one place it says that he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Well, we might not be able to heal the sick, but we can certainly bind up some wounds. We can help out where we can. 
We can see a need and do what we can to help. Some part of compassion is just simply being willing to see something from somebody else's point of view. That's part of compassion. Realizing that the way we see it isn't necessarily the only way to see it. Jesus, it said that he was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. Does our compassion move us? Does it affect us? And if it doesn't, is it any good? Is it of any worth? Let's be compassionate. Let's be careful with our speech. Careful with our speech. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Words that are acceptable in God's sight won't tear down others. They'll build them up. They'll encourage. They'll strengthen. And when the meditations of our heart are acceptable to God, the flow of our words out of our mouth will be affected. It will make a difference. It's so easy to cut and to slice and to tear down with our tongue. Just read James. Um, it comes so quick and easy. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes completely inadvertently, we hurt people with our speech. Before we speak, let's ask ourselves a few questions. Is it helpful or hurtful? You know, sometimes um, I probably don't ask. I've, I've asked our, our children that sometimes before, not necessarily in speech, but I think I read it in a book. We read it in a book um, about asking, you know, is this action helpful or hurtful? Well, sometimes it's kind of hard to put every single thing into just two categories. Um, but it's a good thing to think about. The words of our mouth, are they helpful or hurtful? Is it kind? Is it compassionate? Does it include or does it exclude? How will this sound to somebody else who hears it? Let's think about it. Think about the words of our mouth. Let's be careful with our speech. Let's be prayerful. Let's be prayerful for ourselves, for others, for the church, for God's kingdom. We need to spend time in prayer. And that's something that... Um, I want to do more of. I know I have room to grow there. We need to be prayerful. A healthy Christian, and then by extension, a healthy church will be characterized and based on a healthy prayer life. I don't think you can separate the two. You know, it should be one of the easiest things we do. But so often it seems like it's one of the things that um, is the easiest to, to let slide. 
I think a lack of prayer demonstrates a lack of faith and dependence on God. When we pray for somebody, when we pray for an individual, it affects the way we think about them. It changes the way we view them. And I'm not really, I'm not talking about um, praying that, you know, this person would see it my way uh, or that he would just shape up and do what I want him to do. But I'm talking about praying to the Father in intercession with a true desire that God would bless that person spiritually, that God would, would um, bring him into a, a closer relationship with, him, with himself, that he would be blessed. There's a lot to pray for. I've, just, I've got a little list of things that, that I think we should pray for, and it's not even anywhere close to being... Um, um, complete. But let's pray for the marriages in our church. Let's pray for our marriages. You know, in Ephesians, you get a, a little picture of, of, the, um, of how our, our marriage uh, points people to the relationship between Christ and the church and how it mirrors Christ and the church. And I believe that a unhealthy, dysfunctional marriage um, paints a picture, paints an incomplete picture of Jesus. And it's a harmful witness and testimony. Let's pray for our marriages. Let's pray for our families. Parents. Children. It's a lot of responsibility. Let's pray. Little children, youth, middle children. Let's pray. Pray that God would give wisdom. God would give patience. God would bring maturity. Let's pray for our leaders the men in our church. Let's pray for the husbands, for the fathers, for the church leaders. It's special. I, 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 it's meaningful to me when some, when y'all tell me that y'all are praying for me. Because I'm certainly standing in the need of it. Let's pray for our church that we would focus on the things that God would want us to focus on. Let's pray for our youth. Our youth is part of the church today and perhaps a bigger part of the church tomorrow. Let's pray for our youth. It's been a long time since I was one of the youth but I certainly needed prayer. Let's pray. Let's pray for ourselves. Come before God with a humble heart and ask Him what He wants you to know. Ask Him what He wants you to see.
Ask him what he wants you to do. And then ask for the strength to do it. Let's pray for ourselves. I'd like to finish by reading a few more verses out of Colossians 3. Um, I'll begin and read uh, verse 12 and 13 again. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Maybe, may that be our goal for the coming year. Let's have a song.